This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, the old year 2020 laid bare the fundamental contradictions of capitalism. We'll hear from Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace, who says electoral politics must be secondary to grassroots organizing. And U.S. involvement in the African nation of Cameroon has created humanitarian crises on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. But first, the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations is in its 12th year of advocacy for Black self-determination worldwide. Coalition Chairman Omali Yeshitela says the COVID-19 epidemic and economic breakdown have exposed the United States as a power in decline. I think what we're looking at is a severely wounded, crippled U.S. imperialism as the chief hegemon of world capitalism. The coronavirus pandemic that impacted on the economy was simply something that brought a crisis of this whole economy just into bold relief. We remember that this crisis had begun, that is to say the economic crisis had begun before COVID, that it was driving some U.S. policymakers and certainly the U.S. government to state of obvious kind of near panic. We had the United States government doing things like initiating trade wars with China to try to stop this rise of China as a a major contending force that was rapidly and obviously overtaking the United States economy or the and most of Europe. And so that has begun to reveal itself already. There was already obvious uh, reconfiguration of the world economy occurring. And again, China playing a major role here, but not the only role, in the sense that there are other countries who were doing things to break free of the U.S. stranglehold on their economies, from Venezuela to Iraq, Iran, and various other places like that. So, and of course, there's Cuba always there. So this was something that was already occurring in terms of the downturn in the U.S. economy. And then with the COVID crisis, we saw this happening much more sharply and perhaps more expeditiously than otherwise would have occurred. And we saw the disruption of supply lines all around around the world. Ships couldn't dock, uh, bringing goods to market in various places. Layoffs happening everywhere. The economy just affected in a very serious way, certainly within the United States, certainly in much of Europe, most of Europe. This is what had begun to happen. And with this change in the world economic configuration, of course, I shouldn't leave out Brexit and I shouldn't leave out some other things that were barely noticed by many people in the United States that was happening in Europe that contributed to this crisis and was a response in many ways to the crisis. So then this extraordinary occurrence of the 2016, as you know, the the election of Donald Trump and it creating, wreaking havoc, and also it being a response to the crisis, the growing frustration by ordinary white people in terms of the ability 
of the government to serve their purpose, to satisfy their needs and requirements, something that had been growing for quite a while. And then this loss of prestige in the United States that saw different countries openly, bodaciously defying U.S. dictates, of not only, obviously, China, but even small countries, people and struggles in Afghanistan and Venezuela having the audacity to do this. And so things like this were unfolding everywhere, and it shattered. It was really shaking the identity of our white people in this country, so even resulting in, in sparks and spikes in the death rate of white people are greater than had been seen before. And, in fact, it was the fastest spike in death rates of any sector of the country in the United States. And, of course, this was related. They called it uh, some kind of a crisis of despair of white people, higher rates of drug addiction, suicide, alcoholism, and all of these things, which are really important in terms of trying to measure the crisis of imperialism as it makes itself manifest in the human society itself. And as African people and the Mexican people and other colonized sectors of the world and the United States have been so crucial in terms of not only the economy but the identity of white people, the traditional, typical response has been by a sector of the white population, a strong voice of the white population that clearly represented the, certainly the majority of the voting white population, accepted this definition of a problem being caused for white people by racist Mexicans and by law-breaking black people, that kind of thing. So a greater fracturing of the economy inside the United States, a greater fracturing of the population, the a polarization of various sectors in this country. And then I think one of the most important things happened also was the exposure of uh, the liberal sector of the ruling class in this country, especially as it's represented in this contest, this electoral process. And when I say this, I mean we see that the thing that the rise of Donald Trump as a representative of the white ruling class has exposed the deep white nationalist content of the politic in this country. How whatever is said most of the time, there is an assumption of the control by white America, by America, which is white, of the rest of us. And so we've seen all kinds of things breaking apart as a consequence of that, the confidence, the morale of the general white population that's only been resuscitated with the Donald Trump, make America white again, which is what you know everybody understood it to mean. White people understood it, and African people and Mexicans understood what it meant. And so this was the rallying cry. And this is a situation that has confounded and the rulers of this country, and certainly that sector of the ruling class of America, and much of the world that has dominated the political scene for the last 70 years or more. And so we saw this fracturing, even the division within the ruling class itself, a huge sector of it did come together to try to, to move against Donald Trump, and they succeeded in winning an election, it appears. So I just think that what we see is a very fractured, very sick social system in general, and it's reflected more sharply inside the United States than any place else. Of course, this period of crisis, which is by no means over, has been compared to the Great Depression. But the Great Depression of the 1930s yielded forth a period of reform in the capitalist system. But the incoming Democrats don't seem to be in any mood for reform. I think they don't know how. I don't think they can reform, and I'm not sure 
that there's that kind of space existing in the world economy and the politics of the world for them to be able to succeed this time around as they were last time around in terms of the so-called Great Depression. Uh, certainly, it's really interesting because I think what was revealed in this election is the, what the ruling class pundits like to talk about, the extreme views on both sides, like the left extremism, as they would characterize it, and white extremism. And the white extremism, I don't even know if you can say it's Trump, because Trump got 57% of the vote of the white people who voted. But the point is that this milk toast kind of politic that's traditionally been represented by people like the Clintons and people like the Obamas and people like the Bidens, which is, I've just said the same thing three times, that people were sick and tired of that kind of politics. And I think even Trump was attractive to a lot of people because he ran, obviously, against the system. And I think that uh, white people really thought that this was valuable because the people were fed up with the system. And that was revealed by Trump. That was revealed by Bernie Sanders when he ran earlier on. And then there's this middle road that was facilitated, always facilitated, by the participation of African people who were afraid of, certainly afraid of the extreme that was represented by Trump. And then, of course, was not even reached out too effectively by Sanders. And so the ruling class worked extremely hard this time around. They appear to have uh, won this election, but we see how things continue to unfold. That's a deep and profound crisis here. And I would not have been surprised to have seen actual armed struggles in the streets of this country. And to some extent, we've seen signatures or signs that such a thing uh, is still possible. So it's a very fractured, serious thing, and, and I don't think there is any kind of reform that many people are looking for. I think that also the struggles over this last period has raised the bar to such an extent that reform, as weak as it may be, you know, most times we've seen it, I think that it has, has raised the bar that reform probably means something different today than it did four or five months ago, certainly than it did a year ago. And reform means something that's discussed within the context of more than 10,000 demonstrations and uprisings and protests in the United States within a very short period of time, from May end of, near the end of May uh, through August at least, and more than 10,000 of those demonstrations. And people were burning down police stations and fighting in the I think reform will mean something different. And I think that right now an existential crisis is something that's confounding the rulers of this country and much of the world. I think there's a lot of whistling in the graveyard going on now, but it is an extraordinarily, uh, for them, unsettling situation. And I think it's unsettling for a lot of us, too, who do not assume uh, that our future is uh, tied to the future of America and this social system. One of the characteristics of this period of crisis is the sharp dividing line, the political dividing line based on age, a political dividing line that exists for blacks and for whites and for Latinos, with many young people openly identifying with the word socialism. You're the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. Are you encouraged with this identification, at least based on the term socialism among young people? It is extraordinary. And the thing is that most of the people who, who are able, and, and there are many, many, many people now, as you just suggested, able to say they would appreciate socialism more than capitalism, 
of people who have not been taught what socialism is by socialists. They have been taught what capitalism is by experiences in the world. So well, when we see more people who are open to discussions of socialism, it is precisely because they've experienced the disasters and of capitalism. And, and part of what helps them to experience the disaster of capitalism, of course, is those of us who are among the oppressed peoples of the world who are pointing fingers and who are protesting against it. And then uh, they are faced with the fact that capitalism is destroying the whole of the earth, is under threat by the continuing existence of capitalism. So I think that's right. Socialism is something that leading uh, representatives of the ruling class in this country, however they characterize as leftists or rightists or anything like that, I think socialism is something that the leading forces representing the capitalist system in this country have to begin to address. And some of them address it by trying to get in front of the question and defining what socialism is and join me. It's almost like a revitalized kind of Obamaism, change, 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 based on the fact that more people here and around the world required that, and because it was clear that the system couldn't go effectively where it needed to go for people as it on the trajectory it was on. And I think that's what is happening now, that socialism. And many of us do understand that the contending social forces, economies that we are looking at, is that capitalism versus socialism. And so having the, to make that choice, Many people are opting for socialism. I think we're going to see many, many, many more people do that, even as there are forces, and perhaps this may be the majority at the time being, even as there are forces who are, are gravitating more towards a Trump-type explanation and solution. But I would say this. One thing that was really interesting is the fact that many people who had voted for Sanders and Obama ended up voting for Trump. And uh, people did want some kind of change. Regardless of how Trump articulated that, people wanted some kind of change. And, yes, I am extraordinarily happy to see this discussion of socialism brought onto the agenda, into the public arena. And increasingly what we will see is more and more people defining what the hell socialism is. But the thing is, that is becoming a defining issue, whether it's Trump or McConnell saying that socialism is on the rise in these so-called fake so-called left Democrats, or, or whether it is Bernie Sanders or other people who call themselves democratic socialists who are pushing this question, the fact is that it is a discussion that's, that's happening within the framework of a growing immiseration of certainly of black people and other oppressed people and others at a time of a, a extreme uh, insecurity uh, within this country and the world. This past year has seen the biggest demonstrations in the history of the United States. Those demonstrations were black-led, and although the words black power and black self-determination weren't often heard in those demonstrations, black power and black self-determination were implicit in those activities. One would think that the Black is Back Coalition would find fertile ground for its political message in this kind of environment. I think that's true, and I think it is exercise. It is uh, it's active in this period in a way that uh, is designed to take advantage of it. Because, as you know, I mean, mostly Black Lives Matter has been like a brand. And so uh, anytime any African in any community would confront an activist who would confront uh, a, a police violence or something like that, they get a sign and say Black Lives Matter, and they run out to the streets. And so there's an evidence of that kind of, of thing that's happening. But 
you don't hear a line, a political line, mostly beyond that, that's taken to the people uh, that goes beyond uh, simply a declaration of our self-significance. But the thing that the coalition has been able to do is to talk about black power, to organize around black power, to even intervention in demonstrations that's characterized as black lives demonstrations. We've been able to intervene and to take the line uh, against colonialism, to take the line for black community control of the police, to take the line that black power matters. In fact, you know, I participated a few months ago in an 8,000-strong demonstration in Florida that was sponsored by people who identified or called themselves Black Lives Matter and got a rousing reception in that audience when I was saying quite clearly that, that Black Lives Matter doesn't say anything, that you have to move to an anti-colonial message, that colonialism is the contradiction that we're confronted with and power is the solution. And actually made those, those kinds of uh, presentations, got rousing kind of receptions. And I think in uh, the Lakeland mobilization organized by African people, I think that at least half the people there were white. And then with the mobilization that our coalition just did in November in Washington, D.C., that we went out with the slogan of Black Power Matters. We went out with the slogan called for black community control of the police and things like that. And on the day we were out there, the press indicated that Biden had won the election. And extreme euphoria erupted throughout Washington, D.C. And our march couldn't reach our destination in part because there were so many people in the streets near this Freedom Plaza who were celebrating the fact that Trump had been evicted from, supposedly evicted from the White House. Most of them were white. And we marched in the middle of them. And even during the march, we were making the chanting about black lives won't matter until black power matters. We were chanting that the issue was black power, black community control of the police. And we saw this incredible situation where white people were joining the chant. And this was in the midst of uh, champagne bottle popping. And we saw them, we spoke to them. And we made explicit statements based on our politics, based on politics of self-determination, saying that black people had to have self-determination, that we're not fighting, walking to get you to like us or win a favor from you, that we're fighting for the power of our own lives and that any genuine friend of black people would be able to unite with that and would be able to march with us and stand up for that. We got extraordinarily great responses for this, and this is from a crowd of mostly Democratic Party supporters. So something is happening here, and I do believe that even in places where we are not present, that the influence of the coalition uh, is there and that we are making really important advances. And then there are uh, something like 17 organizations that's part of this coalition, and they're off doing their own things, carrying the same philosophy, the same political line in various places around this country. So I do think that we provide the consistent, we provide the, the consistent narrative, the coherent statement that's coming is coming from us. We see, for example, I mentioned 10,000 mobilizations that happened or more since March between May 25th and August or something. And in all these cities and states throughout the United States, people were coming out, and they were chanting, and they were demonstrating, they were burning down this and that. But the, the thing is that the coherent message that was coming, and every question that even explained what was happening in the 10,000 mobilizations that we did, and most of which, obviously, we didn't participate in, that was our message around self-determination and the struggle for power. 
So I think it's been extraordinarily influential. That was Black is Back Coalition Chairman Omali Yeshitela. Four years ago, Ajamu Baraka ran for vice president on the Green Party ticket. He then formed the Black Alliance for Peace, which has taken the lead in demanding the dismantling of the U.S. military command in Africa and an end to the police occupation of black communities in the United States. Baraka was recently interviewed by Dr. Jared Ball on his influential podcast, I Mix What I Like. Baraka said electoral politics can be important, but only as a tool of grassroots organizing. I've always seen this arena as an arena that could be contested as part of a broader strategic plan to build alternative power that organizations should look seriously and critically at the electoral process that basically there are these spaces on the local level that are winnable that can't be snatched now i'm not suggesting this whole bourgeois individual candidate kind of process where people come to the people say you know my name is so-and-so and uh, i got your interest vote for me no I'm saying, as you are organizing and building power, if you decide that you want to snatch a city council seat or a county commissioner seat or a seat on the board of of education or, or whatever, that's a strategic question that you have to engage in yourself and make a decision. I don't take a a blanket position against engaging the bourgeoisie uh, in their electoral process. To me, it's nothing but a strategic question, not one of principles, okay? So this issue and this, this, this thing in 2016 was, uh, I saw as an opportunity for us to raise a number of critical questions, to engage the people, to bring the people a set of demands that could serve as a transitional program, if you will. I saw this as an opportunity to, in fact, strengthen a third party and therefore, that's why I jumped into it. I, in fact, did it. I had to think about it, but I did it. Now, the situation was much different then than it was today. As everybody might recall, the win of Donald Trump, at one point, they tried to put it at the foot of the Green Party in our campaign. Oh, they still you know? do. They still, to this day, are blaming Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka for the, for the presence of Trump. And the thing about it, this is a serious charge because not only and I, I don't I don't go on Facebook and you know boohoo and cry. Look, we got death threats. You asked me about building the Black Alliance of Peace. When I went on certain tours and stuff, the organizers had to build in a security uh, protocol arrangement. Could I have folks there who you know no telling what they might do? The Senate and the House, primarily the House, engage in an investigation, and then the, then the Senate committee. You know, and it's one thing to be attacked by, you know, somebody on Facebook. It's something else to know your name is being circulated around by the Senate and the House, okay? So this was a serious situation. So what they did to count to make sure that there was no impact on the vote in 2020, when Howie Hawkins and Sister Angela Walker joined the campaign, put together their forces in, in their campaign, the bourgeoisie said, we're not playing with the Green Party this time. You might recall even CNN extended a town hall to the Green Party. We had 26 million people who listened to that town hall that night. Was it a town hall this time around? No. Hell no. Did they get any kind of coverage? They didn't even attacked. We were attacked left and right 
from the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, you name it, left and right. You could Google right now, crazy Ajamo, and see what comes up. So this time around, they said, we're going to engage in that Nixonian benign neglect. We don't pretend like they don't even exist. But not only did they ignore the campaign in terms of the, the bourgeois media, defenders of democracy, those Democrats in the Democratic Party, they decided we're going to go to court and make sure we don't have to deal with no Green Party. And they kicked the Green Party off of ballots across, across the country. We were on 46 ballots across the country in 2016. This year, the campaign was only on like 30, 31 states. And in those key swing states, nada. They kicked them off, okay? These defenders of democracy, these, these people talk about the Republicans and their votes to pressure. Well, is how we talked about what the uh, Democrats engaged in was party suppression. This is how they do democracy in the U.S. Well, I want to understand more clearly from you what you think we should be doing going forward as we, we talk about voting. I know I was trying to, to remind people of what Malcolm X, since he, you know, again, mentioned earlier, what he actually was arguing. In fact, one of the most egregious, I think, distortions in popular discussion of Malcolm from popular scholars to elsewhere is what he said about the vote, which was independent blocks and campaigns and candidates raised from the community that would given a, a community-based platform, that was how we should engage. So whether, for me at least, whether it's within the Green Party or another party formation or the People's Party that's evolving or some something else, that's sort of my personal view of how we should engage the vote as an organizing tactic, I think, as you well explained. But is there a particular approach that you advocate or are looking forward to building in the next couple of years in terms of national politics, at least? The first thing we have to be committed to is building independent formations, independent political formations that are ideologically clear, that take political positions that cannot be co-opted by the enemy. You see, when you take a clear political stance and you say that capitalism is killing our people and that we've got to build a revolutionary movement that ultimately will arrive at a socialist transformation, you can't co-opt that. So we've got to have a framework and a vocabulary. And that's why we're moving in the Black Alliance of Peace toward developing this people-centered human rights framework as part of that trajectory, that instead of this bourgeois, liberal, states-centric human rights stuff that they do, that the, uh, Joe Biden can claim to be a human rights defender, uh, or Barack Obama, or even a Donald Trump, we say that we've got to decolonize human rights. It's got to be at the center, it has to be principles of self-determination, social justice, participatory democracy, and that we build alternative power with the objective of reaching, restructuring society in order for all of our objective human rights to be realized. And the only way that we can objectively realize all of our human rights is in a socialist society. That's Ajamo's position. It's not a position yet of the Black Alliance of Peace. So we want to make that clear because the alliance is an alliance of organizations and individuals. And many of these kinds of political questions, we still are engaged in struggling through. So that's my position as a Jamal Baraka, that basically this is the framework that we can use to help us to realize where we need to go. But to your question, again, is building independent political organizations. If you decide to engage in the electoral process, 
again, that's a strategic question that you all have to deal with. But as you said, it's got to be from an organized perspective. It's got to be part of a strategic plan. And you don't put all your eggs in the one basket. You know, you're not organizing just to, to engage the electoral process. We talk about building dual and contending power. It's about building power, dual alternative structures. And that's the route we've got to go. One of the things that, that I think has been very, very beneficial, one of the civil lines out of this tragic of, of COVID is the revival in the US at least of what we refer to as so, a so-called mutual aid. That's the term people use. But all that really is, is a new, for the US, a new kind of organizing that is really centering the material needs of the people of your communities. You know, throughout the global South, that's how people build organizations. You know, you build organizations, you're not just engaging in abstract sort of political questions, you're dealing with the material needs of the people. You are mapping out your community. You you organizing block by block or village by village. You providing those needed services that the state is not providing, while you also simultaneously putting pressure and demands on the state. Okay, so this mutual aid thing is helping people to understand a broader concept of community organizing and building independent community structures and institutions. That's what we have to build the electoral process. That's just a local question, an organizational question that people have to answer for themselves. We do have a couple of people, I think, would like to hear you elaborate on this question of the candidate pledge. Well, what we came up with about a year and a half ago was a set of demands that we thought should serve as a basis for any candidate or any, any elected official, for that matter, who wanted to support our people and even other progressive people. We had to have a commitment to a set of minimal positions. And some of those positions were, and we talked, touched on some of them, to be opposed to the 1033 program we haven't talked about. The 1033 program, of course, is that Department of Defense program that's been primarily responsible for militarizing the police forces across this country by transferring military-grade equipment from the military to the police forces, you know, to the tune of over $5 billion. Under Barack Hussein Obama, that program expanded 2,400%. So we are opposed to that. Uh, Obama made some cosmetic changes to it. Trump reversed. But the essence of that program continued and continues to this day. So we said, you got to be opposed to 1033. You got to be opposed to this new program that the Trump's administration started called Operation Relentless Pursuit where they're giving local governments resources to strengthen their anti-crime capabilities. We say you've got to be opposed to the Israeli training of police forces. You know, it's and buts about that. you got to oppose that. you got to be opposed to AFRICOM. We say shut down AFRICOM. you got to be opposed to the 800 to 1,000 bases across the country. You know, oppose that. you got to be opposed to the proliferation of nuclear weapons and support the move being made by the General Assembly of the United Nations to prohibit the use of all nuclear weapons. We are part of collective humanity. If there's a, a nuclear exchange, we all die. No matter if you are African or European or whatever, we say you've got to oppose that because the U.S. was in the forefront of opposing the banning of nuclear weapons. And so these are some of the demands that we raised and said that 
if you want our support, you've got to take these positions. Now, uh, and we have people to sign a pledge that they would take those positions. And from that, then you win our support. Now, those demands have been carried over as part of our campaign going forward. So that is what we came up with. We tried to get other elements within the uh, anti-war, uh, anti-imperialist movement to embrace some of that. Uh, one did the U.S. Peace Council, and they have a, a Move the Money campaign, which is a very important campaign. But we said that these are some of the minimum positions one has to take. All of these positions, ending sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. Someone sent me a text asking about why the slogan defund the police is taken off, but not defund the military. I know I've asked a similar question in other spaces, arguing that one is the logical extension of the other. Going back again to what Malcolm used to say about the police doing locally what the military does internationally. Well, you know, it's a very complicated kind of question. I mean, in terms of why one took off and not the other, I think the connection hadn't been made between defund the police and defund the military, but that's slowly being made. The second thing is that the defund the police slogan kind of emerged, of course, in the middle of the George Floyd demonstrations. And it was a very sophisticated campaign, very sophisticated rollout that took place right before another important event was being organized in mid-June calling for community control of the police that, of course, most people didn't know about because it got overshadowed by the demand for defund the police. And so it's a very interesting and serious question that we, we have to really debate because the sentiments for defunding the police are quite clear. Uh, the idea that funds should be transferred away from the repressive apparatus of the police forces to address some of the local material needs of the community is, is understandable. And they connect that to the notion of abolition that is about a step toward abolishing the police. Very important question also. I think the challenge, though, is this, in my opinion, and that is dealing with these kinds of questions in ways that don't abstract those issues from material reality. What do I mean by that? The police and the prisons are aspects of the state. We can take a moral position that we want to create a society in which we no longer need police, we no longer need prisons, we can engage in restorative justice, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to understand that what that entails is to seize and dismantle the existing state. So if you're not talking about seizing state power and dismantling the capitalist state, then basically you can sometimes inadvertently prop up that same state. You can give the impression that those kinds of reforms can in fact be attained within the existing state structure. Now, everybody doesn't say that, but that can be the very clear implication. And we're saying that you've got to be very, very careful of that because we are engaged in an ideological struggle. And so we can inadvertently prop up the very forces that we are opposed to. So this defund the police, uh, leading toward abolition, and all of that, you know, is something we've got to really look at very closely, including even the community control question. You know, this is a demand that our movement has been making for 50 years. And the idea is not just about controlling the police, but what we refer to as public safety in our communities.
and part of a reaching a level of organization in our communities, you are then able to, in fact, provide real public safety in those spaces where you're organizing. But this is part of the challenge, Jared. One of the reasons why there seems to be a sort of a, a class divide between this position of defund the police and the masses themselves is that the organizations that are making that demand have not been able to demonstrate that they have the ability to, in fact, provide some public safety in their communities. So if you're at the house and it's, it's two o'clock in the morning and you're hearing some, some scratching outside one of your windows, you got to be able to know that there's a force you can call on that can help you, that can come to your aid, be it the police or be it your community defense committee or whatever. But you got to be able to demonstrate that you have the capacity to deal with these serious questions that we know we have to deal with because in the transition toward revolutionary change, it doesn't take place overnight. And so you're going to have elements, even within our communities, that have to be dealt with. And if you don't have the ability to hold a block, it's very difficult to co convince a whole community that they should get rid of the police. This question of the left-wing media, they have tremendous gaps. You know, the African world, African people contributing as reporters or analysts, the focus on the conditions of African communities. I don't hear a lot of the discussion that you've already raised here. Do you have any thoughts on what PAC is calling here the so-called left-wing online media that is being driven by white talking heads? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's part of what we, we've been kind of alluding to in this conversation. The ideological struggle that's taking place in this country, even among forces that identify themselves as left, that there are so-called left forces that have taken positions in alignment with the interests of neoliberals, issues of U.S. imperialism. How many places have you heard people talk about Venezuela and why it's important to support that process in Venezuela? You can't go to democracy now anymore. I haven't been on democracy now in four years. That's why shows like your show is important. That's why we, as we've been building this Black Alliance of Peace, we've been establishing relationships with those efforts to provide alternative information and alternative analysis. That's why you find ourselves in the uh, Black Agenda Report. That's why we raise up Voices with Vision. It comes on every Tuesday morning. That's why we point people to hood communists. We say we've got to build our own structures, own independent alternative structures, because we can't depend on the corporate press. And as an independent Black left, we can't depend on these white left spaces either, because they don't understand that the center of revolutionary opposition is with us, the colonized, inside the belly of the empire. That was Black Alliance for Peace national organizer Ajamu Baraka. All but one nation in Africa is collaborating with AFRICOM, the U.S. military command in Africa that was created by the George Bush administration but vastly expanded under President Obama. AFRICOM is deeply involved in the West African nation of Cameroon, where the United States supports a French-speaking government that is at war with both Boko Haram fighters and its own English-speaking population. Journalist Joe Penny has been covering the Cameroon conflict for The Intercept. 
there's different conflicts in Cameroon at the moment. One is between Boko Haram and, and Cameroonian government. And the other one, there's two main ones. There's other smaller ones. But the other main one is between an Anglophone separatist and the Cameroonian government. The Anglophone conflict began in 2016. And that would began with peaceful protests and the Cameroonian government violently suppressed those peaceful protests. Since then, more than 600,000 people have been displaced. And like you mentioned, some 10,000 people have sought asylum or otherwise immigrated to the U.S. since the beginning of that conflict, according to Sylvie Bello, who heads the Cameroon American Council. The U.S. has maintained a close relationship with the Cameroonian military under the guise of the fight against Boko Haram. It has maintained relationships with different West African militaries. Really, I mean, in the past, it's always had relationships with them, but it intensified after 2012 when jihadist groups took the north of Mali and there was a French intervention. So since then, there's been a rapid expansion of American military in the region, including a major drone base in Niger, but really relationships with other militaries in the region, and one of them is Cameroon. So there's an American, small American military base in northern Cameroon, within a Cameroonian military base. On that base, there have been reports of torture. So as you mentioned before, the U.S., what they do in Cameroon is similar to in other uh, countries around the world. In Cameroon, they work very closely with the basically the highest, the most elite unit of the Cameroonian military, which is called the Rapid Intervention Brigade, or BIR, it's French acronym. And they're the ones who have really been accused of having the worst human rights abuses. So the U.S. has trained them, equipped them. In 2019, they had to stop sending them military weapons because of human rights abuses that were reported, and Congress stopped certain programs. Other cooperation has continued with the Cameroonian military, and it's also important to include that the Israeli military has also had a close relationship with the BIR, and Israeli mercenaries are still in Cameroon training and equipping the BIR, according to a recent report by African Argument. Yes, this is typical of the U.S. military presence in Africa and around the world. That is, they turn a blind eye or only reduce aid in some nominal way when these governments that the U.S. government has a relationship with turn their guns on their own people. Yes, I would say that that's typical. They have a relationship of wanting to control and and expand power. And often the way they do that is to train an elite group, an elite unit, which is generally done under the guise of counterterrorism. But then, of course, as we see in, in many countries around the world, those units end up terrorizing their own people. So in the case of the BIR, the BIR was the, the training and equipment of the U.S. military to BIR was supposed to be done under the strict rule that it could only be used to fight Boko Haram. Not only was that unit deployed and had led to civilian deaths in northern Cameroon, but increasingly the president of Cameroon, Paul Bia, deployed those troops to the Anglophone region. And they've been accused of some of the most horrific abuses, burning down villages indiscriminately killing villagers, locking people up without due process, torture. So increasingly, as the Anglophone conflict intensified, the BIR 
was brought to deploy against the Anglophone in the Anglophone region. So as you mentioned, the U.S. will often pick a specific unit, train them with the best equipment, and then give it to the president basically to do as they want with it. And we've seen that in Cameroon, and it becomes a tool for repression for the president. It becomes almost a personal tool of repression for specific presidents. We've seen this in Cameroon with Paul Bia. So Paul Bia has been in charge of Cameroon for the past 38 years, and that is partially due to especially French support for Paul Bia, but also American and Israeli support. One thing I also like to mention is that the Anglophone conflict, which has been so devastating to Cameroon, the U.S. and France especially could really have a role in ending it if the certain attempts were made to bring it to the U.N. Security Council, for example. But France especially has kept the Anglophone conflict off the U.N. Security Council because it's allied with Paul Bia. And the U.S. and Israel likes it that way, too, because Cameroon votes pro-Israel at the U.N. under Paul Bia. So they want him to stay in charge, essentially. Yes, a cynical outsider might conclude that the threat to several nations from Boko Haram is being used as a kind of blank check by the United States to give aid and military assistance to any leader in Africa that they choose. Yeah, it's definitely been used. The threat of Boko Haram has definitely been used by the American military to expand unchecked in the Sahel region. And that's not only the case in Cameroon, but that's definitely as well the case in Niger, where there's a $110 million drone base that was built that was first approved by Obama and then was completed under Trump. But that drone base, it's actually unclear what specifically that drone base is being used for, but it's armed drones, and there's almost no accountability for how they're used. And so they're likely being used in Libya, but also potentially Mali, while actually Boko Haram continues to attack civilians and has not actually reduced their capacity for destruction in the region. So despite having so much American and French military presence in the region, the terrorism, of course, has actually gone up. And so this humanitarian crisis in Cameroon and in the entire region has now spread and created a humanitarian crisis an ocean away in Mexico. Yeah, exactly. So the Anglophone conflict, the beginning of the Anglophone conflict coincided with a crackdown on immigration from Europe in Africa and especially in West Africa. So uh, a lot of Cameroonians and Anglophone Cameroonians made the journey to the U.S. through South and Central America, often from Ecuador. They go overland to the Mexican-U.S. border. Along that way, it's a very dangerous route. They encounter many difficulties along that route. And at the border of Cameroon, now there's two different places where this humanitarian crisis is especially aggravated. One is the southern border of Mexico in a town called Tapachula. So where thousands of immigrants uh, were detained by the Mexican government due to a deal that they did with Trump. And then at the, at the Mexico-U.S. border, due to Trump's metering policy, there are now camps of people living at the border with next to no resources. And those include a lot of Cameroonians as well. 
and a lot of Haitians. Why are the Cameroonians and other Africans and Haitians so anxious not to remain in Mexico, but to continue on to the United States? Yeah, a lot of Haitians definitely as well, and, and thanks for including that. Um, the Africans, they encounter a lot of racism in Mexico. They're disproportionately targeted by the Mexican authorities. They have to pay bribes to different people, including American and Mexican authorities, in order for their asylum cases to be heard. But their goal is to get into the U.S. often or, or possibly Canada as well, where a lot of times there's Cameroonian family members who are waiting for them in the U.S. who would like to receive them and are unable to because they've been blocked by the racist policies of the U.S. and Mexico. Now, as you explained, the Mexicans imposed those restrictions, keeping these folks inside Mexico under pressure from the Trump administration. One would think that the Mexican authorities would like to get these refugees off of their hands. Yeah, and due to the pandemic, there hasn't been the same level of reporting from Tapachula as before. So it's actually unclear what's happened to the thousands of especially African immigrants who were being held in Tapachula, basically in an open-air prison. They weren't allowed to leave the, the city limits. If they left the city limits, they were returned to Tapachula. So the Mexican government, it's unclear how they will react in this current situation, but they definitely have carried out a lot of harmful policies, especially against Black immigrants, and have basically taken Trump's orders and implemented their own racist orders and specifically targeted Haitian and African immigrants during this time period but, uh, and as well before. Of course, there are many more Central and South Americans who are caught up in much the same bind as these Africans and these Haitians. But you write that the Africans especially are much more cohesive as a group and that they're more inclined to demonstrate and protest the situation. Yeah, so Anglophone Cameroonians especially, they've been organizing often their whole lives for autonomy in the Anglophone region. So they've carried out some of the largest protests, especially in ICE detention. In Don Hutto Detention Center earlier this year in February, 140 women carried out a massive protest, and then they were split up. ICE punished them by splitting them up and sending them to different detention centers. After that, a group of men in Pine Prairie Detention Center, which is in central Louisiana, began a hunger strike. They carried out two hunger strikes throughout this year. In their second one, which is over the summer in June, they had basically, it was 48 immigrants, and they had almost three weeks of hunger strike. ICE first denied the existence of the hunger strike. But then after they ended the hunger strike, ICE then deported a, a lot of them and split the others into different detention centers so that they wouldn't be able to organize effectively. So they do this as a punishment for organizing these protests. And they were protesting racist treatment in detention. They were protesting racist treatment by judges, immigration judges, so they get their asylum applications are denied at a greater rate than other groups, even though the situation in Cameroon is, is really devastating. And they also are protesting medical negligence, so they don't have, often if they have asthma, their inhalers aren't replaced when they're finished. 
hypertension. So many Cameroonians especially have, are suffering from hypertension. They don't get the treatment when they go to the doctor. Of course, this is not limited to detention. This is, you know, a greater racist medical practice across the U.S. They don't get the adequate medical attention when their pain is, is denied by the nurses. Is there any indication that the incoming Biden administration has any specific plans to relieve the suffering, not just of the Haitians and the Cameroonians, but the many tens of thousands of other asylum seekers who are trapped on the other side of the border? Yeah, it's important to note, of course, that anti-immigration, especially anti-Black immigration, has been bipartisan policy. A lot of the Trump administration's policies that targeted immigrants, the foundations were, of course, laid by Obama, but not only Obama, but also the Clinton administration. So we can expect, of course, an anti-immigration agenda. But that doesn't mean that there aren't major efforts made by activist groups and and advocacy groups. Their key policies, uh, according to different people I've spoken to, like Gerlene Joseph, who has the Haitian Bridge Alliance, TPS, that's really important. That's temporary protected status. Trump ended that program for 59,000 Haitian immigrants, for example. It's important that, that that's reinstated, and that can be reinstated with an executive order. TPS also is being fought for for Cameroon. That's incredibly important. That will allow the asylum seekers, Cameroonian asylum seekers in the U.S., just a, a bit of a time to breathe and also uh, turning the TPS as well as being fought for for Eritrea and Bahamas. Of course, in Bahamas, there was a hurricane that devastated the country. End of cash bond. Of course, everybody wants the, the closure of immigration detention, the abolishing of ICE. So these are some of the key policy agendas. Advocacy groups are fighting for TPS for Cameroon as a primary policy priority for Biden. He can do that through an executive order. Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson in Texas has begun work on legislation for TPS for Cameroon. Please explain that acronym, TPS. Yeah, so TPS stands for Temporary Protected Status, and it just means that you have specific protections. And so it doesn't mean you have permanent residency. It doesn't mean you have citizenship. It just means due to a specific situation, a dangerous situation in your home country, in your country of origin, that you cannot be deported and you can possibly work during the time period that TPS is implemented. And note that TPS, the first letter is C for temporary. So it's just a temporary reprieve. So these advocacy groups want this legislation to be permanent reprieve. TPS, there's only a handful of African countries on the list, even though many African countries would technically qualify for TPS. So activists are working to push for just less anti-Black application of TPS as well. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.